first church was created. Because really the book of Acts is chronologically, you know what I'm trying to say, is basically writing down how the Spirit built the church as we know it today. From there you go into all these letters uh, from Paul and it's basically addressing problems that the church had because we know once you make something new, new is hard, isn't it? Have you ever tried something new? It's difficult. And that's why the churches had difficulty because they were new on many levels. Not only was this a, a new teaching or this fulfillment of this Old Testament where the, the Jewish people became basically uh, the Messianic Jews that followed Jesus, but some of them didn't, so there was tension there at home. But then this guy named Paul went around and bringing all these Gentiles, these foreigners, these pagans into the church. Man, their culture was different. It was a melting pot of ideas. They, were, they grew up with all these different gods and stuff and, how do you, and all these festivals and things like that. And they were trying to be Christian based on Jewish traditions that they some knew, some didn't. But it raised a lot of problems because it was new. And then we go through and we see how we address the problems of the churches. And then we had some pastoral addresses and we got Hebrews. And now we hit James. James is lumped together, or grouped, we'll say grouped together, with Peter, John, and Jude. Have you ever noticed that? These were the pillars, the, the founding leaders, the teachers of the church in Jerusalem. They were seen as the authority on how to live. James is first, because James, half-brother of Jesus, worked and lived beside Jesus and heard his very words. So he was the obvious choice of a leader in this church. I mean, he was his brother. He had more relationship even than those disciples had. You know, I always think of James, or Jacob if you use kind of his real name, but James, uh, like I do my own brothers. We grew up in a construction household. So I know what it was like to go out work with dad and, and, and use your muscles and labor and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you work hard during the day, but there was times you took lunch breaks and things like that. And I remember those conversations around with my brothers and other guys on the construction site, how you just kind of started talking and sharing life together. And as strange as it is, I guess with some of our background, religion came up, our philosophy, our theology all these topics that you wouldn't associate with job sites, they came up. And I imagine with the way Jesus and James were raised, it came up on their job sites. And so we see that the influence of his brother was great. And if you've ever read through, which I hope you have because we've covered it earlier this year, the Sermon on the Mount, it greatly influenced James's understanding of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, what it meant to be a follower, what it meant to live life in respect to what God has done for you. It called us to a higher ethic than this world. That's right. If you're a Christian, if you call on the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible, the Scripture, Jesus himself calls us to live an ethic higher than our world would call us to live. But he was greatly influenced by the, his brother in the Sermon of the Mount, but also in the, the wisdom of the Old Testament, especially that of Proverbs. 
And so as Paul wrote to address issues or to give encouragement to some uh, followers of his, James wrote differently. This is a letter sent to us, sent to churches, but it was a letter that was really a summary of what he taught and believed. And not much after this letter was written, he would pay for his life, pay with his life for his following of this lesson. So we see right there in the first chapter that he calls for endurance through trials. And to look at trials differently, to look at trials as something that is good. Who looks at trials as something that is good? James learned to. Jesus taught him how. Because when you live in poverty, you don't take uh, the sense of pride kind of washes away, doesn't it? Because when you don't have and you depend on the generosity of others, things take on a new meaning. But when you do have, things take on another meaning. If you've ever studied the life of uh, John Wesley, you'll see that he was perplexed by this idea of this Christian lifestyle. He said it reaches into the hearts of depravity and, and poverty And it lifts those up who have no choice but to hope in something better than this world. But the problem he saw was as those who were outside of the faith came to be Christians and tried to live by the teachings of the Bible, by getting away the vices, uh, ridding themselves of immorality, these kind of things, their health improved, their health improved, their work improved. They started, even in their cruddy jobs that they had, they started putting more effort into it. And when they put more effort in the job, they started advancing the job. And so they started to make a little bit more money. And it kind of goes on and on and on. And so when they first came to know the Lord, they lived with absolutely nothing. But as they came to know the Lord, because the Christian ethic called them to be above what this world was, they raised above their poverty, and became wealthy over time. Well, wealth has a tendency of corrupting. And so for John, as he saw his own parishioners, he saw that wealth corrupts, but poverty encourages. And he didn't know what to do with it, because he also didn't read in the Scripture that you're just supposed to be poor all the time and depend on others. You're supposed to follow these and these tenets and those kind of things, but living the lifestyle this Bible calls us to is advantageous even in this world. Because if we work wholeheartedly at everything we do, guess what? People notice. If people notice, we get opportunities for advancements. If we get opportunities for advancements, our resources change. But the problem lies when we lose focus on what God has placed before us. When we lose focus that it is God living in us that is giving us an advantage to this world, and we think it's us, it's me, we start turning to those old fleshly desires that we had given up to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Chapter 3 of James is very much a part of this problem that we see. And we're going to go through this whole chapter because it's really not very long. But it's the one that preaches to me louder than probably any other book in the Bible or chapter in the Bible. But it tells me this. It says in verse 3, chapter 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brother and sister, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes is speaking, is, is <laughs> just like I said, anyone who makes no mistake in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with the bridle. If we put bits in the mouths of horses, it makes them obey us. We guide their whole body. Or look at a ship. Though they are so large and it takes great, it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder. Whenever the will of the pilot, wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great exploits. I once caught a fish this big. When it was this big. The tongue and the teaching. How do we do it? So James addresses those who would be called to be leaders. What is the point of being a leader when there's so much danger involved with it? When you're called to be a leader, it brings status. Or it used to. In this town it has some. Well, there's something that goes along with leadership. Leaders in any business gives us a little bit of a status symbol. But we can build pride and things like that into it. Love this idea of a horse. I'm not a horseman, definitely not a jockey. I was just not made that way. I don't drive cattle and all that kind of stuff like some of y'all do on a regular basis. I've only ridden a horse one time in my life. And I think this was one of those glue factory horses, the way they described it. <laughs> it had a bridle and all that. You could pull on it, the horse wouldn't change direction. You could kick it, the horse wouldn't speed up. And I finally asked him, what am I doing wrong? He said, well, that horse doesn't know any better. It's been doing this route so long, that's all it knows how to do. So it just does it, no matter what the rider influence is. It doesn't speed up, it doesn't slow down, it just walks the course and it gets you back to the barn where you belong. And so if you never rode a horse, we put you on that one. Because if you don't know what you're doing, it could go wrong very quickly. So it's interesting when we talk about the tongue. Smallest part of our body. Well, not smallest part of our body, but the smallest part that we use most regularly. In the same sentence, you can bless and you can curse. It's like that bit... The mouth of a horse. If you got one, you can control the whole body. But if you can't rein in the tongue, what can you do? You know, when we use the word perfection here, James uses it a lot in this book. He is not talking about elegance in speech. He's not talking about perfection in the way that we normally understand perfection. He is talking about this concept of wholeness. A wholeness that was lost when sin entered the world. We can talk about the fall, we can talk about that. But when sin entered in the world, our lives became fractured. We became less than who we were. And we're living life as fractured people. And those who have not found the gospel, who have not found the Lord Jesus Christ, and invited them into their hearts... There is no hope for them but to live a flat, fractured life all of their days. But even those of us who have found Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we still notice that our life is fractured. 
And as James points out, that in the same mouth that we can bless and praise the Lord, we also can curse and hate our neighbor because we're still living this fractured life. Because we live in this time of already not yet. Christ has already come to redeem us, but he has not yet drawn us out of this world to perfect us. And so our life is healed, but yet still broken. Have you ever suffered an injury? Have you ever had many stitches? I look at my hand from time to time. I've got quite a few scars on it from my days of construction and and working on small engines. But this one here, 14 stitches, I remember that well, because when I did that, I could look and see my knuckle bone. Quite freaky when it happened. I passed out. But it's a reminder. I've been put back together. But I'm still a fractured individual. I know injuries to joints and and things like that happened years ago in my youth. Now as the weather shifts, I can still remember what I did. Some of you may be like that. You wake up someday and everything just creaks and pops. And you're like, I didn't think I was old yet. But it gets there awful quick. Because we live fractured lives, but Jesus wants us to live an ethic, a lifestyle that is above it. He wants us to live this perfect life, this life of wholeness, to where we're put back together complete. He doesn't want us to be that little spark, as it says in verse 5, that sets a whole forest on fire. He wants us to be able to have our tongues under control. Because when we let our tongues and our mouths go loosely, that is the devil working in our life. And see, that's where we live. We live in a time where God is calling us to wholeness, but the devil is trying to convince us we're already there and to turn back to our old selves because we don't have to work at it. We don't have to find the endurance to get through. But James learned differently, and he gave his life because he had learned differently. He had learned that trials bring about endurance. When the world looks at us and says, there's nothing to brag about, that's when he knew we grew our most. You know the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. It is absolutely true. Because when we look back on our life and we see the trials that we faced, And we see the things that the world would say was a disadvantage because of the one that we follow. We can see how we have grown. Not too many people I have met in life come and tell you, you know, when everything was growing great great in my life, when my business was running well, when my marriage was nice and happy, I grew so spiritually during those days. You don't get that conversation. You get the conversation is when the doctor said you have cancer. Your prayer life increased. Or when you find out the news of the loss of a loved one. Or other situations that we go through. It's those trials of life. When they hit, they hurt more than anything else. Jesus' life is an example of that greatest teacher the world has ever known and yet always at odds with others no one could just sit back and go wow 
That was great. Because he challenged their own identities. And no one wants to be challenged of who they are. This book challenges our identity in Christ. You know, as Baptists, we love to say you need to read the Bible and you need to pray. And those are the disciplines that we live in. But when we look at the life of Jesus, we saw that he did so much more. He prayed and he read the Bible. But he also found solitude. And he fasted. He found fellowship and retreat. He had to recharge his, bo- his body so that he could go in. And that he could contend with the evil desires. The evil that was all around him. As we go and we continue reading, in verse 13 it tells us this, that there's two ways that we live our life with the wisdom of this world, or the wisdom that can be found. In 13 it tells us this, Who is wise and understanding among you? James asked. Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, Do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, Wielding to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality and hip- or hypocrisy. The har- and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So there's wisdoms of this world, and there's a wisdom from above. So a lot of times when we go about life, we look for the loopholes. We say, there's no reason to focus on our physical health when we have a strong spiritual health, right? But if you have a strong spiritual health and have ever suffered illness, you know that you would trade a strong spiritual health. Oh, you wouldn't trade a strong spiritual health, but you would gladly add a (laughs) strong physical health to that. Those trials may make you stronger, but you know that if both of you are strong, you can do far more for the gospel. The Apostle Paul wrestles with that throughout his life. As long as he was on earth, he saw fit work for him. If you've ever tried to work with a disability, would you trade that in a heartbeat to work without one? Remember one time I, when I cut this hand, I tried to continue working with this hand, left hand. A little bit harder. My dad put me light duty, pulling weeds at the garden. Well, this hand pulled a bunch of poison ivy out, so it was swollen. <laughs> My mom finally told him I needed a day off. You would trade it for wellness in a heartbeat you've never suffered you don't know what you're missing but if you've suffered you know that you want all to be right not just an injured hand or a busted finger or a cut leg broken bones or cancer cells we want to be made whole both 
spiritually and physically. But many of us are walking around with healthy bodies and we are in far worse condition because we're in a life of spiritual decay. We, have made, we may have made a decision when we were young to follow Jesus Christ, but from where James is looking, our life doesn't show it to anyone around us. If they didn't know we even owned the Bible, they would have never known who we followed. No one can see it in us. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells about the two people who built a house. One was built on a foundation. One was built on the sand. When the trials of life came down, that one on the sand crumbled. One on built on the foundation didn't. But he also says in that same sermon, don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers. It's not about what we do in our physical body that makes us in right standing with God. That is a spiritual nature, and that is only given to us by the grace and mercy of God. But our physical body should follow suit to our spiritual life. And so if we hear and we believe with our minds and our heart, people ought to look at us on how we live, how we follow that golden rule that Jesus taught us, First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. You learn that from the book of Deuteronomy and through the teachings of Jesus. God is very foremost first in your life. But second is like it. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. If you want to show that you are a follower of God, it's not about the physical disciplines that we put ourselves through that some will follow of fasting and prayer and Bible study and all these other acts of service that we can do that some people think earns you credit with God. It's not about that. It's simply about hearing what God commanding, loving Him first and foremost in our life, and putting others as we would put ourselves. Don't worry about all that other if you can do those two things. But if you struggle with loving your enemy... Maybe you ought to pick up some of Jesus' habits. Just consider these words. So as you read through the book of James, or you continue to read the next few days, let these Proverbs sink home. These one-liners that are easy to remember. Let them remind you of how you to live. When you go to reach to pay for your check, and you come across a coin... Let it be a reminder to you that in my life I either can bless those or I can curse those. There's no joking. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. It's black or white. But so many times we choose a side that we didn't want to. But let it be a reminder that Christ lives in you. And all you have to do is let the Lord use you for his service. If you try to do it on your own, you're going to fail time and time again. So say, Lord, I can't love like I should. Teach me. Use me. Show me how it's done. And he will hear your prayer. And he will give you the strength that you will need. But now if you ever have the courage to pray that, guarantee you trials will come your way. Because how do you truly learn to do something? By study alone or by studying and doing? It is those who study and also do 
that become masters. That are able to bridle their tongue. That are able to, to steer a ship. That can set a whole world on fire by who they are. But evil so much wants that place in your life. It is yours to choose who's going to win. Join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your scripture, Lord. We know that it, it speaks as heavily to the pastor today as it does those who are out here listening to our message. Lord, we pray that through trials and through tribulations, through our past and through our future, that you will mold and make us into the people you called us to be. That we will learn to find our identity in you first and not in ourselves. Because you offer perfection and wholeness. Where in our humanity we only offer at best a fractured life. It is only through you that we can be made perfect. That is where our strength lies. That is what James found and that is what Jesus taught. So teach us to be those who are whole. Who are living the life that we were created to be. It is in your name we pray. Amen.